You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ty Cooper, who is using Flask to power an online store that lets you buy things with cryptocurrency. Ty, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Yeah, so my name is Ty Cooper. I have been a software developer for about seven, going on eight years. I started when I was 13, and I'm 20 now, soon to be 21. And when I went about creating this application, it's called Streamline. Uh, Stream, uh, taking out the EA in line, spelt normally. Well, I went about creating this. It originally wasn't supposed to be a crypto online store. The original premise of it was going to be only a crypto slash real estate marketplace because a couple years ago in 2017, 2018, I had dabbled in real estate investing. And so I wanted to bring some of my uh, software talents to the real estate space. So that was the original intent. And I was working with someone at the time on it but things got re- complicated really fast all because of the whole reason why real estate isn't just as simple as buying and selling with cash there's agents involved at times you gotta get title and escrow all these different things made it very incomprehensible in some instances and just made it the process to go about building out a wide-scale application like this very difficult and at the time there's so many ICOs coming out and regulation really started to pick up in the United States so I decided to go about a different route and create a cryptocurrency marketplace where people can buy and sell products for cryptocurrency and that's pretty much the whole premise of starting that, this particular application. But let's start with uh, how long has this site has been running in production for? It's been running in production since October 15th. So that's about five months now. What really provoked you to use Flask then? Did you look at other things like Django or even other programming language, languages with their different frameworks? Yeah. So when I started to learn Flask, like I knew way back... When it comes to web development, that you have HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, when it comes to building out front-end applications, but I rarely hear about building out back-end applications. And back in 2017, I dabbled in PHP and SQL because that was popular at the time. But it wasn't until uh, I started to pick up Python, I was like, Python is simple simple to understand and there's a lot of variety and versatility to utilizing python for applications and i i thought well can you build a website i literally looked up can you build a website with python and they said yes you can through django and flask i took a look at django first and i looked at a few tutorials uh and then i looked at flask look at a few tutorials and i gravitated towards flask uh, more, I'm sorry, I'm a Flask fan, <laughs> just because I, I love how all the different components and it's very customizable in a sense, and it's just easy, very easy startup, and 
at times could be easier to understand, but people have their arguments about Django. I do prefer Flask a lot more, and so it really came off of Google search. It took me a few Reddit posts to find it when people were recommending it, and after I watched uh, Pretty Printed videos and that Corey guys, and I was pretty much uh, good to go in terms of diving deeper into utilizing Flask. Right. Yeah, I think if you're a newcomer to programming, just getting into backend development, I mean, you know, there's definitely reasons to use Django over Flask or Flask over Django. Like, but yeah, at the end of the day, like if you look at just like the homepage of each one, when you see the Flask homepage, like hello world example with like five lines of code, like that just seems way easier to digest than a whole tutorial, like even needed to just to get started. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with this. So Given that the app's been up and running for a little bit since October, uh, would you still, like, let's say you were to rewrite this site from scratch today, would you still use Flask then or no? Yeah, I still use Flask um, just because I don't really see much reason to expand upon it. I know sometimes people will say you want to uh, advance your code to handle larger performances, but I'm happy that I use Flask because not only when I built out Streamline, I also have a business where I build out uh, applications for other people. So a lot of the code that I built for Streamline, people want to utilize in their projects. So I'll just, you know, take some pieces of code here and there and switch it up a little bit to service them as well. In a sense, building out a tech network of clients who I'm facilitating their code for. And a lot of times code is a very uh, copy paste at times. The only time it's not is when you are building out something unique and you're going to have to put in a lot of effort into increasing the performance of, of what you're trying to build out. But for a lot of times the clients that I built sites for, all they really need is just a simple email capture or simple contact page or having something do something really cool with some quick data mining or something like that and they're good to go right yeah it's super beneficial to have some pre-built code that you've written on other projects and then be able to reuse that reuse that in future ones i do that all the time you know as long as that code isn't licensed to be specific to a company you know you can't always break ndas and things like that right so rewinding back to the streamline site how do you have this broken up is it uh a single monolithic application, or do you have it broken up into a couple of microservices? A lot of the backend is processed through Flask, um, just for when I want to deal with custom uh, processing and data movements. And then I also have it hosted on Firebase, and I love Firebase when it comes to MVPs because uh, it's just so quick to push out and dish out applications, but as it grows, I definitely want to move into utilizing MongoDB and other uh, applications that are going to be better uh, when it comes to terms of performance. I know Firebase is good in that census, but I haven't tested it when it comes to high amounts of traffic. And I heard that a lot of times Firebase could not be the best in that instance. So I have Firebase when it comes to databasing and storage and then I also have Flask to do a lot of the processing before I, I'll have it pushed to the front end. Front end I have built with utilizing the framework view. Okay, so then you have Flask is operating as uh, an API backend then, right? 
Yes, yes. Okay. So I noticed on your site before we hopped on this call, I did take a quick look at it. There was a way for users to sign up, like a user registration system. Do you recall like which libraries you chose to get that set up, especially for an API app? So for that, I just used Bcrypt to encrypt the data and also what's the what's the one? JWT. Oh, okay. Flask JWT extended, maybe? Yes. So I'm using that and I'm using Bcrypt to encrypt a lot of the data. Uh, especially passwords, and then I have all that data stored on the Firebase uh, database. Okay. Before we get into the Firebase and maybe some other components of your tech stack, what made you go with an API backend instead of just using like server-side templates with Jinja 2? Oh, so I actually have used Jinja 2 in the past. I do have a few sites that I did build with Jinja 2. Um, I just decided to go with the API backend because um, when I was building a few... JS, it just made things a lot easier. Well, I would say easier because it might be comp. It actually can be cumbersome for, um, if you're not familiar with JavaScript. But I, I love the documentation with Vue.js, and I just kind of been a good supporting of it. And I like the component structure where it has template, then script, and uh, style all for a specific component, all in one script or one page. And then when I found out I could use things like uh, Axios or Ajax just to call that data and have a, a section where data can be processed differently on the front end, whereas on the back end, all I have to do is structure it and send it down to the front end, I just thought it was a lot easier. And it, it's easier, it becomes a lot easier when it comes to debugging and when it comes to documentations because even though I'm not building a documentation for the next developer or for another a developer who I bring on a team, uh, it makes it easier for them to debug and figure out where the, where the code is. And it makes it very readable. So let's say if there's an error like, oh, that's a, that's coming from this API. So they just check the API and fix it there. Or if it's a front end issue, they can fix it on the front end and the code be um, refined. Were there any challenges uh, getting set up to be able to sell products for cryptocurrency? It's still an ongoing battle. So the very first issue that I had was getting a money transmitter license because they were saying, oh, you're operating as a tra money transmitter with cryptocurrency. Because if I'm using a payment process, a payment gateway like Stripe or PayPal, they're not going to require a money transmitter license for them. Uh, from you your application because they are kind of already take care of that but whereas with cryptocurrency you actually holding on to private keys in a sense so they consider it as you holding on to their money so i had to find a crypto gaming pathways and try to partner with them and to allow their system to be processed into the application okay so i guess in the end then you're not storing those private keys you're not basically like pci compliance but for cryptocurrency right no i'm not storing private keys okay so were there any python or even flask specific libraries that helped you wire all the stuff together yes actually probably not flask but there is a python library which is uh web 3 pi and as far as flask i'm trying to think at the moment Cause there's a lot, a lot of libraries that I probably use from Flask. I know one thing that I used was when getting an email alert, I use Flask Mail, which, ooh, so something interesting about that, uh, real quick, I had utilized Flask Mail to try to 
rebuild MailChimp in a sense. Wow, that's uh, big ambitions. <laughs> the intent of it wasn't to be going into live production. The intent was for me to be able to uh, take a lot of the same processings and applications and services that MailChimp would provide and create a simplified version of it utilizing Flask Mail and essentially creating an email server uh, or email campaign uh, system with Flask Mail. And that's just something that I kind of use because, and then going into later, uh, I like to template a lot of my code so that way I could you know use it over and over again. So th this was something that I built for myself. And then I also use it as a way to service other uh, clients who don't want to I guess pay for uh, Mailchimp, so uh, it's a custom-built uh, email servers. Wow, that's pretty cool. And yeah, honestly, I don't blame you at all because some of those, uh, like Mailchimp and ConvertKit and GetDrip and all those, you know, they're good services, right? Definitely provide value, but they're very, 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 very expensive. Like relative to the income that you might make, I guess it depends on how big your list is, but it's not uncommon to be spending, you know, thousands of dollars a month just to be able to maybe send one email a month or something like that. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And one thing I love about Flax Mail is that it's HTML based. So when you when you want to go out and create an email, you just have a lot of the, all the, if you're already experienced in creating websites and things of that sort, you can utilize HTML and CSS to build an attractive email page or what do you call it? Uh, when they send it out, like an email, like one of those attractive email flyers. I, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. but Yeah, just like a newsletter email. Thank you. Yeah, newsletter. So building out a newsletter email and you just send it out and you all you're using is just HTML because at the end of the day, a lot of email is HTML based. Yep. Which email service do you use then through Flask Mail? Like SendGrid or Postmark, one of those? Um... Outlook is one of the big ones that I use to process a lot of those emails with. Oh, okay. So I guess speaking of maybe some other tools that you might be using, do you use anything for like logging in metrics or getting error reports sent to you if things go wrong with the app? Yeah. So uh, when you're utilizing Python Anywhere, uh, they have a Flask uh, stack. So if you want to build a Flask application, you could, it becomes a lot easier to utilize their pre-packaged system because they handle flags pretty well. So if there's ever an error that occurs, uh, they have a little error log. I want to work on having it send alerts to, like, you know, via email. So they're still working on having that getting detected. But as far as different things uh, getting flared up, I would utilize um, Tulio. When certain things don't trigger, uh, utilizing uh, try and accept errors to catch those errors. And if the error does catch, I'll send a feedback um, through the API so it shows on the user end. But I'll get a text notification that will say, hey, this error is uh, going on. Please fix this real quick. And then that's what I'll pretty much use uh, when it comes to fixing those errors. Okay. So before we get into maybe like the deployment side of things, because I've actually never used Python anywhere before, 
what do you use locally then to set up your application? Do you just do you just have it running directly on your DevBox or are you using Docker, things like that, or no? Oh, yeah. I'm using Firebase. Uh, Firebase has a hosting uh, part in their uh, application where you can host uh, applications. So I utilize Firebase to host and kind of keep everything um, connected. Hold on, sorry to interrupt you then. Do you just want to give maybe like a TLDR and what Firebase is allowing you to do? Because I'm getting a little confused here. Are you using it as like your whole entire dev environment? Right. Okay, so <laughs> Firebase is Google's way to deploy applications and essentially be able to manage them through uh, DevOps, a DevOps sort of way. And in a way, yes, for the front end, but for the back end, I'm using Python anywhere for API. So I kind of have two, two sections of them. So I have one being hosted on the back end and then I have one being hosted on the front end Firebase. I utilize to host my front end applications and store the data that I collect and I'm using the server side of things to uh, take things that are from Firebase, restructure them, and do some other outside processing to send it back to the front end. So that's how the dev uh, stack is. I see. Okay. You don't have Python installed locally. You're not running like a G-Unicorn Flask server on your Mac or Windows box or whatever, right? I used to, but no, I, um, not for most of my applications now. Okay. So what made you go with uh, Python Anywhere and even Firebase? Like, what made you roll with that setup versus more like, oh, maybe I'll just use Heroku or maybe I'll set up my own server, something like that? So it, it really comes down to convenience. When I first started utilizing Python, it wasn't to build websites. It was to build chatbots. So for apps like Telegram and apps like Facebook Messenger or even texting apps, uh, that was one of my uh, premier things was to build chatbots for businesses. So I needed somewhere to host all these bots because they have to run 24-7. And it wasn't until I stumbled across Python Anywhere. And so I built up these little chatbots and I just had them running on the server. And it wasn't until I found out that with Python Anywhere, you can utilize it to host um, web apps. And it was cheap to get started. They have custom plans, but I think you can get $12 a month for three web applications and they'll give you a free one. That's what I've just been using to build out a lot of my uh, apps, <laughs> web applications. Okay. So when you say you get three web applications, is that one app with like three instances running like load balanced or is that three individual like isolated applications that you could deploy? No, three uh, individual uh, applications like web apps that are individually running. They, they give you space on, on their uh, what do you call it, system where you can host up to three. Okay. So what do you do then for the Python Anywhere backend? Do you just like hook that up to a domain name through their backend that you registered somewhere else? Yes. So I'll use a C name like, kind of like API dot something, something, whatever the case may be. And I'll just use that to process a lot of uh, data. And you can hook up domains. So if I'm building out a template application using Jinja 2, uh, I'll also, you can also utilize that for it as well. Okay. And then what about for the front end stuff? Like all that you said is being hosted through Firebase, like your view, you know, your JavaScript and CSS and things like that. Do they just serve those files directly then straight through Firebase? Mm -hmm. Because when you go on your domain, uh, I'll have one, I have like the IP pointed towards my front end application, but then I'll have a C name 
or yeah, a new record that's pointed to API dot and pointed it to my Python Anywhere backend. So that way they're both on the same domain. And when it comes to processing APIs, then all I have to do is take the domain name, say whatever it's supposed to do function wise, uh, and send a put or a get or post request to it. And then boom, the application's in running. It's functional. Nice. Uh, so does Python Anywhere also give you, I guess, free SSL certificates too? Yes. Yes, they do. Cool. And you mentioned that was about 12 bucks a month. You get three of those apps. Like what type of traffic are we dealing with on your site? So when I have traffic, I obviously build these sites off clients. And I know they always ask me why I'm not using WordPress or why am I not using one of these pre-built sites. I find it very cookie cutter and there's a lot of restrictions as a software developer. So I wanted to have built them the best quality and that also is something that's favorable for them as well so when it comes to python anywhere in a price you can actually do custom pricing so you could say instead of at twelve dollars going through three applications you could say hey i wanted to go through five applications but i'll have the processing really low um and then you can do it enterprise levels as well so right now i have around 50 or so sites that are running and the traffic per month among all of them it could fluctuate between six to ten thousand uh it's going to increase it's definitely going to increase more over the next few um few years because uh some of the applications i'm gonna dive into are going to be uh clients with large clientels so i'm going to uh work with them in providing uh better performance and I might not use Python anywhere long term. I might utilize something that's capable and better to handle for just kind of like Heroku or even Amazon Web Service. Uh, or I heard Microsoft Azure might be something interesting to use. I'm not too sure about that. So definitely as things increase, those are different ones I want to take a look into. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, you spend all this time learning HTML and CSS and JavaScript and Flask and developing your application and making all these sites for people. And then there's like the whole other side of the world where it comes to like application deployment. So like you mentioned using AWS or Azure or the Google Cloud or Heroku, there's like so many different ones to choose from. And then it's like, if you decide to ever roll your own server, there's like a rabbit hole that goes like a hundred million miles deep to like learn how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So is this actually something uh that you you would want to learn maybe in the future or no? Like how to set up your own server and get like a database running and all that other stuff? Yeah, and I also want to know ways to utilize blockchain as well because, you know, I'm a crypto guy. Uh, I've seen few blockchain uh, database applications, kind of like uh, IPFS or uh, ProvenDV, but those are still early stage and not really... Uh, better when it comes to well they're not better than systems that already exist out there and they are also uh, very early on so they have a lot to resolve before they can handle uh, full scalability for their systems right so going back to your app for now do you want to maybe walk us through what your deployment process looks like like how do you get code from your dev box into production so it's live on the site yeah, so so when you build out Firebase, 
when you go to host it, you you'll get two links. You'll get one that's web app, whatever your site name is dot web app, and you'll get another one that's whatever your site name dot firebase dot com or something like that. And when I build it locally, I'll you know check it, run it, run error tests, and that's another thing. Having unit tests and uh, setting up bots locally to test out the application is so crucial and so important just so that way you, you know you're not you're making sure you're not missing anything and once i make sure everything is structured well i'll deploy it uh, just straight from the local machine into firebase and then i'll also push it to a private github uh, system as well so i know the code was on my github not public, obviously, especially for a lot of things, but it's easier because I have two, I basically have two computers on one. So if I had to go back and forth between my Windows or my Mac, then all I had to do is just pull, uh, pull the code from GitHub and then work on it locally because I have pretty much the same systems installed in both and it just makes things a lot easier in that sense. Right. And then you also get basically a free backup yeah. being on GitHub. Yeah, exactly. It's like free backup. Yep. So you mentioned that you do have a whole bunch of tests set up. Uh, are you using PyTest for those? Well, for JavaScript and my front end stuff, I'm using unit tests. So. Okay. What about the Python side? Python, when I run tests, <laughs> I was very noobish at first where I was just, I was like, you know, I'll just let it run. And if it breaks, it breaks. <laughs> and I'll just fix it when it breaks. But I've started to become a little bit more mature uh, when I when it comes to different types of testings. Uh, I haven't dived much into PyTest, but I do have like bots running, uh, utilizing Selenium on my local side. So if I am running a local server, I'll have like Selenium run. That's kind of like the test that I'm using for front end wise of things to make sure if anything, you know, breaks or if there's different type of systems that are sent or no if there's this type of data that is sent to python api then it will be able to work on cutting those errors and refining those bugs to make it better for performance right so do you maybe want to just give like a tldr and what selenium is for for listeners out there yeah so selenium is it's not a web scraper per se but i'll say it's a web automator so if there's a lot of things that you want to do that's that's repetitive then selenium is a great way to automate those tasks for example a tinder bot and this is actually how i got banned off of tinder um i had set up a selenium bot to go ahead log in and swipe oh and it's browser based so it only works on uh the browser you need that browser's driver so i know edge has one uh motor mozzarella 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 cheese yeah (laughs) firefox (laughs) and google chrome has one as well so you want to find their driver and then when their drive when their driver set up you use selenium to essentially automate those tasks via browser and how i got banned off of tinder i set up a bot and then it auto swipes based on like certain criteria and then i have bought tinder plus so you get unlimited matches uh, someone told me to limit the the swipes to make it seem you know legit, but I had I had overclocked it, 
<laughs> so the matches were going like three to five swipes a second, and it was loading uh, Tinder services, and then they ultimately just banned me um, from their uh, system. <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. It's definitely a problem too when you're dealing with web scraping in general. It's like, yeah, you really need to do things to try to see more human, like throw in like a, a random delay for X amount of seconds and things like that. Yeah. So going back to your app, when it comes to Python Anywhere and maybe, well, probably not Firebase, but maybe, how do you deal with like secret keys, like things that you wouldn't typically want to push up to GitHub? Oh, you use uh, environment variables and environment variables aren't detected by Git or no, you put that file, that environment variable file into the gitignore so that the gitignore will ignore that file and it's not going to get pushed to github so i have the environment variables all the secret keys and api keys and all the sensitive information are stored in environment variables but in order to access those environment variables uh there's at times going to be a system to check to make sure it's coming directly from internally within the server to just import a little bit more of that cybersecurity uh, methods into it as well. Ah, so is that is that set up then documented on Python Anywhere's website? No, it's not documented on there. That's just something that I learned to set up uh, by learning Flask. <laughs> oh, cool. So speaking about maybe security and I guess this is semi-related, but like, you know, planning for disasters or unexpected events or malicious users, do you have anything like uh, like database backups that happen or is that automatically provided by Firebase? No, it's not automatically provided by Firebase. Uh, but you could do, it's not, it's a non-SQL database. So if you need to have database backups, you can just download it and then you have it stored on your computer or something. I wouldn't recommend having it stored on your computer. I'd much rather have a backup stored on uh, the server, which is another reason why I like, you know, Python anywhere. So I'd probably do uh, database backups every, how do you say, like, month or so everyone has their uh taste for it but i'll make sure i have just just enough space to have those have that data stored on the server and then again i have a git ignore on that database file it's probably at times probably even like a json file or it'd be a sql file oh and another thing is if if there's times where your database is overloaded you could utilize like split databasing. So if you want to, I also know about Flask SQL Alchemy. That's one I used a lot at the start um, just for it being a SQL based database. So that's one that I like to use too. So if you want to split or have database backups, then uh, you could utilize those tools. And then I have all those tools stored on uh, Python anywhere. Okay, cool. So I noticed too, when I went to your site that there are images for some of these products or most of them. I remember like sunglasses and, you know, reading glasses, things like that. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that, with those files, those images? Do you upload them through like a Flask backend or how does that work? Okay. So yeah, those are uploaded directly from the front end and sent to, well, those file images are going to get a link from Firebase. And then that link is going to be a link to the photo. And that's good because I don't want to actually have all those photos stored on <laughs> the database and causing a lot of you know data issues. So at first, I just had it sent from 
the front end and directly to Flask. And then Flask resizes the image and compresses it so that way it doesn't take up as much data. And then it gets stored on a database. Firebase has a storage uh, system where you can just store the files directly. So I, I, I take all that and I do it in the front end where the where right before it gets submitted, then the images are gets compressed and the file names of them are what, what's the one? It's WebP. They're reprocessed into WebP so that way because WebP is the less amount of data when it comes to uh, reading those files. So so it gets pro- reprocessed and resized. Well, it gets like compressed or compressed. Yeah. Yes, it gets compressed and reprocessed into that uh, new file type and get stored on the Firebase storage. Nice. So I guess continuing on with like maybe unexpected events and things going wrong, uh, do you have anything hooked up to like your main website where if it were to go down, like not get a status code 200 or something like that, you'll get notified of that? Yeah. When I go about building any type of application, this is the setup. At first, people always want it to look fashionable and appealing and very attractive in design. That's all cool and all, but you want to make sure it works and you want to make sure it doesn't break. So I think about the functionality first. So it's content and then functionality and design I always put last because you can do, you can fix the design at any time. Um, and it's not going to be too much of a big issue. User interface designs, uh, what I mean. So right before I like deploy it, I'm go back and making sure all the the things that are going to return a promise. So like all my asynchronous um, functions that are going to fetch a promise from the database, not the database, from the API. Different things that that I'll use to submit the data is tested, and if an error occurs, I have a felt fallback system where it will show the user like, hey, something failed, uh, come back next time, or I'll have something in replace of it. So one of the clever ways that I did was when it comes to payment processing, that if it fails, then I have it saying like, uh, I just have a refresh page or saying something of the sort, your payment was processed, come, come back to double check to see it worked, and then you got to think of clever ways to make it not seem like a fail if that's what I'm kind of getting at. Right. You mean if it were to fail, the end user looking at the website wouldn't really necessarily see, like the whole entire site wouldn't be blown up. You know, it would just be maybe like that one specific thing didn't load, but you'd have some placeholder in there. Is that what you mean? Precisely so. I'll have a placeholder there to ensure the security of the site. And... Uh, improve the user experience as well. Right. But then I guess at the end of the day, then you don't have something hooked up that emails you if the site goes down, like Uptime Robot or Pingdom. There's a whole bunch of different sites like that, or maybe even something that's provided by Python anywhere. Well, yeah, the site goes down, then I do have, I do get like notifications that's um, going to tell me through um, Firebase on the front end side of things. And if the site does go down on Python, on the Python Anywhere side, I'll also get a notification for that too. Okay, and I guess that what that comes through Python anywhere that notification. Yeah, and then you, I can also go and check the error logs and the server logs to see uh, when there was times that it was down or anything of that sort. Right. So we're getting kind of near the end of the show here, and I like to wrap things up with my favorite question, which is, what are some of your best tips and, and lessons learned from building this site? 
so I know a lot of times when people go about developing, they try to learn all they can, and that's great and all, but a lot of times the best ways you're going to learn is by actually doing it, and don't worry that if things fail, those are actually some of the best times, because you know that something did fail, and it failed on you now, then then you having it perfect, and something fails in the future to be detrimental, so learning about what you want to do by actively doing it all while learning while you're doing it is some of the best ways to go about it. So while I was was doing uh, software development over the past eight or so years, um, I would learn like, you know, YouTube tutorial and whatnot, but I'll actually be doing it. And when it comes to programming, it's a forever growing skill. It's kind of like math, where you learn how to add, and you learn how to subtract, and you learn multiply. Same thing with programming. Once you learn the syntax, then you're going to learn uh, different uh, different libraries. You're going to learn different frameworks. You're going to learn uh, different functions, and all this stuff adds up and build upon each other. But uh, utilizing all these all these things that you learn and applying it is some of the best things that I can give to anyone. So just making sure that you're always active in coding because there's going to be times where you'll learn a, a coding language and not use it. And then it just gets, it goes off the other way. Yeah, no, it's super easy to just passively watch a video for two hours. And then when you're done, it's like the first hour and 45 minutes of it. You kind of don't remember. Yeah. You don't really have an opportunity to, to practice using it. That practicing is a huge help mm -hmm. to learn. So I, I guess now on the opposite side of like best tips and lessons learned, do you recall making any mistakes while developing this project? And like, what did you do to fix them? One of my biggest mistakes was doing it alone. That was probably one of my biggest mistakes because you are only as best as you, your own opinion at times. So, so now going in the future, if I'm going to develop something, I'd much rather have someone who I can develop with and learn uh, different tricks and tactics from them and as well they can learn from me they can say oh you supposed this is what my way of doing it and i can show oh, this is my way of doing it and it and you become a team player and especially when you want to go out and you know apply for jobs or you want to build your own startup or you want to build a business around it uh, you're going to work with someone eventually you can't i always say you can't really do it alone like you can't pay yourself a million dollars if you don't have a million dollars so you're going to have to start learning how to work with people. You're going to have to learn how to uh, bring people on. And I know a lot of times people like me back when I was 19 want to build up a <laughs> billion-dollar company at some age, whatever, for some billion-dollar app idea. I'm just going to say now that's a pipe dream, and that's pretty much like gambling if you are going into a startup for that reason but if you're going to a startup to actually provide value and actually to learn and actually work with someone and building up a dream together then that's more impactful than anything i know the whole lifestyle flashy cars things of that sort is attractive but going about it alone could be a lot of times difficult because there might be something that you don't know that's the other person does know and doesn't it's not as efficient so if i had someone who i was working with i probably would have got it done a lot faster and i probably would have reduced a lot of mistakes along the way as well yeah that's really good advice and too like when you're dealing with someone else it's it's way easier i think at least to stay on track if you have like an accountability partner you know someone who is there to make sure you keep doing what you need to do and you make sure 
to uh, keep them on track as well, you know? Instead of just, if you're on your own totally, it's very easy to work on something, and then it's like, eh, it kind of just fizzles out, and then like three months later you pick it up, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And who knows, it might be that other person keeping the drive alive while you're starting to feel like, uh, I'm having other passions about something else. And yes, I, I do agree that sometimes working alone is cool, but those are some of the best times to learn about yourself and what you want to do. But when it comes to actually, you know, conducting business and pushing out deployment applications, bringing someone on is great and all. And in the event that you do want to decide to turn into a business, just making sure you have the intent up front. Don't let anyone swindle you. It's like, oh, if you build this out, I'll pay you or whatnot. Make you, just make sure you have all the cases in a row and that everyone's on the same page when it comes to that. Because I know that can be a little bit sensitive topic for a lot of people, especially um, when it comes to the conducting business. But you want to make sure you're protected as much as uh, your ideas and your uh, business is protected. Right. Yep. Definitely good points. So Ty, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. I'm thankful for you having me too, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share maybe some links to your site or Twitter, Instagram, GitHub profile, anything like that? Right. So with Streamline, I might take it into a different direction. But if you want to follow me and learning more about a lot of the tech development stuff that I've been doing, uh, my Instagram is T-Y-C-O-O underscore AOW, so Taiku underscore AOW, and my Twitter, my Reddit, and my YouTube channel is just Ty Cooper AOW, and you can pretty much find me anywhere. <laughs> I even pop up a Google, I set up a lot of my SEO stuff to so I pop up there, and, and if you want to know more about cryptocurrency, then uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Mr. Crypto Priest, so. Okay, cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.